Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And unsurprisingly, we are once again talking about the beloved Taylor Taylor Swift. (laughs) You guys probably already have seen this because she has literally lit the internet on fire. As per usual. Per usual. I mean, anything she does really does that. Um, But she is, you know, kind of changing her taste in men, maybe? I'm not exactly sure. Mm. It hasn't been confirmed, but we're really, we're we're leaving our short, or our t-shirts for our short skirts, as she said, you know, 10 whatever years ago. (laughs) And she's cheering. She was lately seen cheering for Kansas City Chief tight end Travis Kelsey. So big news. Big news. Totally different guy. Totally different type. But um, excited for her because it seems like that's what all her songs were about. Like <laughs> high school. They're uh, coming true. Yeah. It's like she manifested it or something. I don't know. But something that's not manifested is the Taylor Swift effect. And that is what people are basically calling Taylor Swift's impact mm. on both popularity and economic success of others. It's kind of crazy. Um, We're seeing this with Travis Kelsey. Just he had a huge week this week where, you know, not only did he score a touchdown and did some really great work on the field, but he also gained over 300,000 social media followers and sales of his jersey went up 400 percent just after Taylor Swift wore the jersey in one of her concerts. It's actually insane. He's on track now in just a few weeks of the season being underway of being one of the top five jerseys sold in the season and maybe even the top jersey just because Taylor decided to wear it in one of her concerts. So on top of that, we've kind of talked about this before. Taylor Swift has added, uh, according to Fortune, a predicted $4.6 billion in consumer spending to the U.S. economy. And it's just, you know, that's that's the Taylor Swift effect, basically, Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. But I had to laugh because Instagram has just, of course, blown up with this Travis Kelsey news and Taylor Swift. And there have been so many creative reels. (laughs) I saw a hilarious one last night of a wife intentionally just egging on her husband saying, oh, Taylor Swift is really helping Travis Kelsey. You know, she's really helping his career. No one knew who he was. He until, was a nobody. And, yeah, he was just a nobody. And the husband is just livid, like, what do you mean? <laughs> he was already a star. He doesn't need Taylor Swift's help. But for so many Taylor Swift fans who don't necessarily follow the NFL, all of a sudden they are very aware of who Travis Kelsey is. And Kristen, like you said, Many of them are now following him on social media and buying his jersey, and they are all in. And we honestly don't even know if Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are dating. All we know is that they have hung out a few times. Yeah, no, All the only detail he really gave on his podcast was that they got into his getaway car <laughs> and uh, went out to eat afterwards. But it's kind of funny because NFL is really, like, not just NFL, but everyone's kind of leaning into this Taylor Swift. Just within 24 hours of, of that game, NFL on Twitter put in parentheses NFL Taylor's version. And <laughs> Spotify made a, a tailgate um, playlist with Taylor Swift in the, in the box at the game. It oh. was 
was so so funny just seeing the impact of that (laughs) well i mean hey you gotta you gotta play with the cards that you're dealt right and the nfl is like we're gonna take advantage exactly situation well Kristen, we have a full show planned for today that goes beyond just taylor swift so go ahead let us know what we have queued up yeah, up on today's Problematic Women, the government looks like it's headed for a shutdown. We explain why it relates to Elon Musk's trip to the southern border. And the Senate has told lawmakers that they can wear whatever they want. Do dress codes matter? Plus, the Supreme Court will be back in session soon. What are the big cases everyone will be talking about this term? We explain. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's go ahead and get Sarah in here and get to it. Well, Sarah Partial Perry, Senior Legal Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, is back with a second week in a row. Sarah, thanks for being back here. Holla. (laughs) (laughs) You are here. We are alive. We are moving forward. Well, there is a lot of activity in Washington, D.C. right now, but a whole bunch of government employees, they look like they might get a little bit of paid time off here pretty soon. Yeah. And that's that's because Congress has not yet reached an agreement on the budget. Congress has until Saturday, that's September 30th, to pass a spending bill for next year in order to avoid a shutdown. But because Congress is rarely able to actually agree on a budget for the new fiscal year, the House and Senate usually pass something that's called a continuing resolution or a CR that continues funding for the government through the end of the year while these budget debates continue. Um, But there is really no movement right now towards that. We saw earlier this week that there was a proposed continuing resolution that passed in the Senate, was approved in the Senate that would fund the government through, I think, November 17th. That's going to be dead on arrival in the House, vice versa. Anything right now that it looks like that the House could pass would be dead on arrival in the Senate. So the two are at a standstill. We've seen House Speaker Kevin McCarthy express frustration over this and is saying that he doesn't understand why so many of his Republican colleagues who are really holding the line don't want to pass a continuing resolution or refuse to. Some GOP lawmakers say that they want spending cuts in D.C. and that they're not going to support a spending bill that provides money to the Department of Homeland Security without taking action to Mm -hmm. secure the southern border. So the southern border is actually this massive player in this conversation right now over spending. The House Freedom Caucus contains uh, a number of the more conservative GOP lawmakers. They issued a letter in August stating that they would oppose any spending measure that doesn't include a bill that the House already passed called the Secure the Border Act of 2023. And Republicans, they are putting their foot down on this issue. And the reason why they're putting their foot down is because we're seeing this explosion of illegal alien crossings at our southern border. This week, we've been hitting record highs, specifically in the city of Eagle Pass. They have seen literally hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens crossing. I think it was between last Friday and Sunday. They had 
4,000 illegal aliens cross on, I believe it was Tuesday. There was 11,000 that we saw cross the border. August marked the highest month on record for illegal boarding border crossings. Then you have all these cities, Democrat-run cities, like in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams. He said that the migrant crisis will literally destroy New York City. Mm. So, I mean, this is something that not just is being felt at the border. It's being felt across the country. And interestingly enough, in response to this situation, now we have Elon Musk saying he's traveling down to Eagle Pass to the southern border because he wants to see for himself what is going on now? Yeah. I found this interesting because Elon Musk—he's not a politician, um, he's he's not a reporter. Why do you think he thinks it's important to go to the border? You know, I think he's naturally inquisitive, and I'm going to tell you why. Because he's been more and more vocal on X, formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> um, about his individual perspectives on things. And one of the things that he's weighed in on that's surprised me significantly is the whole gender identity crisis that has taken over American schools mm-hmm. and adolescents. I find this to be no different. He's someone who is very keen to ask difficult questions. Mm-hmm. If he's not satisfied with an answer, he wants to investigate for himself. I applaud him for going down to the southern border to actually see in Virginia. You know, you've been there. I mean, you see it with your own eyes exactly how significant this crisis is. I think Senate Republicans and frankly, House Republicans, too, who've not just taken on funding for the border, but they've also taken on defunding diversity, equity, and inclusion programs Mm -hmm. for the government and climate programs for the government. The favorite tool of Washington fat cat bureaucrats is to use funding packages, what are known as must-pass legislation, (laughs) to shove all of their pet policy agenda items Mm -hmm. in through the back door. I think the GOP Quite frankly, I think they're taking a note from Senator Tommy Tuberville, who has taken a stand on DOD nominations and said, listen, I'm going to use the machinery of government to make sure you guys are actually following what the law says. In that case, it's prohibition on government funding for abortions. In this particular case, they're saying, listen, we have to pass this resolution. We don't have Mm -hmm. to obligate the American taxpayer to more of your ridiculous climate and diversity programs. I love you everything you just said i love it because that's exactly what's happening we're looking at this branding from you know the media in general and even uh, punchbowl news talked about it this morning a government shutdown is bad yeah it's bad but it's not bad for the reasons we think mm-hmm. and if we actually are saying we want to change washington we want to get things done just like project 2025 says there are going to be growing pains. And that's kind of what Kevin McCarthy has said. He's not afraid to step up and like really lean into this, but it is going to be painful and it is going to take some time. And I I do feel bad. I have a lot of friends in the federal government. Some of them are very concerned and thinking, one of my friends actually, she said, I I don't, I have savings, but you know, if this thing, they're being told it could be two to three weeks or it could go until December 12th. And that's Mm -hmm. a long time, especially during the holidays. So I empathize and I do not underestimate the fear that is behind that. But it was funny because she's like, I, could I take a TSP loan out? Like, is the TSP even going to be open? Like, because yeah. that's, you yeah. know, thrift saving oh, plan. Yeah. So there's a lot they get of back pay, but they don't get paid during the shutdown. Exactly. And yeah. it was painful when that happened, the partial shutdown. Um, it was painful. But the reason they're doing it, I get, you know, I, I yeah. understand if we're going to actually change, we can't continue to use federal. They're literally using federal employees as hostages to 
continue this normal Biden, Pelosi, Schumer era yeah. continuing resolution. It mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, it really is truly using the power of the purse. Congress has that right. And money talks in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And so you have to use it as the tool that it is. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're doing is you're obligating individuals, governors, citizens in those border towns, in mm-hmm. towns and states where there is this massive influx of illegal immigration. You're obligating them. Increased costs for law enforcement, increased welfare costs. You you are taking their obligations and essentially dismissing them by saying, we want to make sure we spend money on our pet liberal agenda mm-hmm. policy items. We don't care about the little guy. Right. We don't care about the mom and pop shops that are sort of feeling the influx of this in these border towns. It's it's something I think that has to be stopped. (laughs) Chip Roy, Representative Chip Roy, God bless him, said if there were people who weren't concerned with the border wall, frankly, they could kiss his a double S. That's that's a man who feels passionately about it. But I think he's tapped into that sentiment of a lot of Americans who are feeling as though this administration does not care Mm -hmm. about illegal immigration. In fact, they are facilitating it. It's a sieve on the southern border. We know it is. This is, I think, the appropriate mechanism to be able to get the party in power to finally do something about it. Well, I'm going to be really curious to see what Elon Musk says after his visit down there, because quite frankly, you know, Elon Musk has a reach that none of us sitting in this room have, uh, that even politicians don't have, because people on both sides of the aisle, a lot of young people listen to Elon Musk. They see him as someone who's fair and balanced and who's a seeker of truth. Um, And, you know, whatever you think about him, he, he does seem to be willing to, you know, agree with Republicans on some things agree with Democrats on other things. He has not uh, he's not associated himself with one party or the other. And I think that there's a real advantage to that in and in people really listening to what he has to say. Last thing I'll say on this. Well, maybe last thing um, is this is the man that's trying to get us to Mars and has done <laughs> a ton to get astronauts off of American soil. Like he's totally revived the, the pro- space program in Florida and in the United States as a whole. He can fix our border. Like, I trust him. I trust him. And I I think, you know, just the motivation here is he understands technology. He understands, like, he is incredibly creative in the way he thinks. And he's now living in Texas with, you know, his millions of kids. I don't know how many kids he has anymore. A lot of children. But he's got a lot of kids. And he's probably looking and seeing that the people crossing the border, they're from Venezuela. They're from, like, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't good. Russia. We have Chinese... People Nationals, that look yeah. as though they're in the, the Chinese army. Like, yeah. this is not a safe, it, like, stuff is, is about to hit the fan. And Elon is seeing that. And he's like, okay, I'm here. Let oh. me let me take a, I just, <laughs> I just fixed Twitter. Let me fix the border now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic, Kristen. Well, Kristen's vote is for Elon, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, stay tuned because up next, we're going to talk dress codes. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news and keep up with the issues that I care about. So if you're anything like me, you probably enjoy researching interesting topics and just watching entertaining clips on YouTube. 
But, you know, sometimes it's really hard to know what information is well-researched and actually trustworthy. And that's where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news that you care about and give you the data and the facts really succinctly. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips, from our podcast, and so much more. So go ahead, subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so that you can stay informed and never miss out on the news that actually matters. You know, a few things get people more riled up than dress codes. I certainly know that that was true for me when I was in school. Did you all go to schools that had dress codes? No, but my kids did, and I loved it. <laughs> like, this makes my life so much it easier. It certainly does. And yeah. there's something about a dress code. You know, you can sort of chafe against them as you want, but I will tell you that it represents sort of a decorum, an expectation mm-hmm. by way of your dress. My daughter goes to a private school right now, and they have to wear khaki and navy and white. And their pleated skirts and, you know, their navy sweaters and white Oxford shirts I absolutely love it because now, side note, we've seen sort of the the youngest generation wear increasingly revealing clothing. Mm-hmm. Yep. She goes to an institution that was founded back in 1853. I'm thrilled to see her now have to wear those <laughs> pleated skirts and white Oxford shirts. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. But yes, there is something about the sort of element of decorum that can really be appreciated in a dress code. Mm-hmm. Kristen, did you have to did you have to wear a dress code? I went to public school, so I did not have to wear a dress code. I, I wrote on it. I remember that was how we prepared for the ACT. It was writing an influential essay on if we should or should not. And I always said no because, you know, I believe in the power of choice. But honestly, it would have made getting ready in the morning way easier. <laughs> Yeah, I I went to a high school that had, it wasn't a uniform, but we had to wear like polo shirts and and khakis and all that. And it did take so much of the guesswork out of what to wear. And totally, you know, when you're younger, you're like, I just want to wear what I want. Mm -hmm. And then increasingly as I got older, I was like, this is actually nice. Like when you're a teenager and you're like, I just roll out of bed and throw on a polo. This is kind of (laughs) nice. But now, uh, now the Senate seems to have, uh, seems to have changed their rules. They have changed their rules. The issue has exploded on Capitol Hill over the past week after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told the Senate's sergeant-at-arms to stop enforcing the Senate's unwritten dress code. So the Senate, they do not have a written dress code, but the formality was it was understood. It was a given, and there, there was a certain decorum and dress that you were expected to present, especially when on the Senate floor. But a senator from Pennsylvania, he is playing by his own rules, and he's definitely enjoying the fact that there is no longer an enforceable dress code in the Senate. And of course, that senator that we are talking about is Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman. And he is known for wearing big shorts and hoodies. Yeah. Uh, and now he's gotten the green light to, mm. to wear all those shorts and hoodies on the floor of the Senate. People have really strong feelings about this. You know, yeah. I, I think... I think the question to consider is first, why do dress codes exist? What purpose do they serve, especially with adults? I think it's really easy to make an argument for kids. You know, it's nice to not um, be comparing outfits, things like that. Uh, There's an ease to it as parents. But for adults, what's the purpose? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because I think in this particular context and on Capitol Hill and specifically in the Senate, you know, this is a this is a very august, serious institution. It's been around since 1789. And the dress code has never been sort of strictly enforced or articulated, but it's always understood to represent the seriousness of the mission that these individuals have essentially been tasked with on a daily basis. Um, There's something, I think, that's happened over the previous past few years, and it's not just with John uh, Fetterman, but with Kristen Sinema of Arizona, Mm. who started wearing outfits that, for example, bare the shoulders or lower cut. She's worn pink wigs. That, to me, is sort of the clownish representation Mm. of the fact that we've evolved from an era of statesmen to an era of politicians and bureaucrats, Mm. right? So Mm. we're in a completely different phase now in terms of American governance. I despise it. I would like to see more civility in both chambers of the House. Um, This was arranged originally, the purpose, the creation of Congress itself by the Constitution, which lays out the creation of Congress, was essentially supposed to be normal, everyday people who were given an opportunity of voice to represent their constituency and then we're going to leave. This was not a lifetime appointment. They were to essentially do their time and then they were to leave. This is why I'm all for term limits. Um, But I will tell you, it's never been relaxed until these past couple of years. And like I said, we saw it first with Kristen Sinema of Arizona, now with John Fetterman. The fact that he wears basketball shorts and hoodies Mm -hmm. to the upper chamber, this august institution in Washington, D.C., absolutely infuriates me. It's one of those things. The only time they've ever modified it was when Senator Trent Lott of Mississippi introduced back in the late 90s something called Seersucker Thursday, which was, (laughs) believe it or not, a sort of a nod to the fact that Congress used to meet in the days before air conditioning. They were meeting in sort of the heat of that Indian summer on the swamp. And so there have been some really neat pictures that have circulated of both GOP and Democratic senators sort of celebrating it with seersucker suits or seersucker skirts. Very sort of classical, nodding to the actual history of the institution, but now it's a clown show. Yeah, I mean, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And he either wants to be a basketball coach or Adam Sandler. And I mean, I get Adam Sandler, but... Yeah. Dude, what are you doing? And it's just to your point, it's so embarrassing. Like we literally what is he going to do? Show up to uh, State of the Union wearing that or does he have yeah. a special basketball pair of shorts and sweatshirt that he's going to wear to that? I don't <laughs> understand it. I also we have a country that's bankrupt. What are we doing passing yeah. dress code laws? That's like here on the priority list. We like there's a lot of things we need to do before passing a freaking dress code. Well, Senator uh, Collins, Susan Collins of Maine has already said, hey, I guess I get to wear a bikini to the Senate floor right, tomorrow. Like, who, she makes a great point. You know, she, and she this is a woman who normally we- wears Chanel suits. Not that I would notice, but I do notice because I'm <laughs> kind of it. a clothes hog. <laughs> but I got to tell you, as she recognizes, and this has been roundly criticized. Now, surprisingly, Most of the uh, criticism has come from the GOP, but we've seen the Democrats weigh in as well because all of them are thinking, come on, we can at least be unified in the concept of appreciating the history of the institution that we're representing. You know, it's embarrassing. Yeah, it is. Well, there's there's a level of decorum and the world pays attention 
to what America does. And I think to your point, Kristen, of, you know, we hear that, especially as you're preparing to enter the job field of dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And, you know, it's it's a psychological fact that people who present themselves in a way that is professional, that wear nice clothes, are often treated better and earn more respect. And you can say that that's wrong and we should treat everyone equally. Sure, I understand that argument, but there is just a level where you do earn more respect if you present yourself as the fact that you respect yourself. And a way to show that you respect yourself is to present yourself in a way that is professional and that looks nice and that matches the environment that you're in. And certainly anyone, I mean, if you think about it, uh, even as as a tourist, you would probably feel a little uncomfortable walking in to tourist Senate building if you were wearing a big hoodie mm-hmm. and gym shorts. And yet as an elected senator, that's what we are seeing happen by someone like John Fetterman. So, um, you know, I, I get it. Hoodies are comfortable. Shorts are great. Every day after work, I usually go home and throw on a sweatshirt and a pair of yoga pants or sweatpants. It's comfortable, but that's that's not what I'm wearing I've to done work. that. I've done that in the gym here and driven home in comfy clothes. Like, there are things you can do <laughs> right. that are not wearing <laughs> On the, on the Senate floor, I just, I'm, I'm not over it. it it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. All right. Well, finally today, we need to do a little bit of a rundown of another branch of government, and that yeah. is our Supreme Court. Well, we've got, um, so, so the judicial branch obviously follows a calendar that's very similar to the legislative branch, yes. right? So they, they kind of follow it and... I think everybody here at Heritage, at least on the legal floor, gets to breathe a little bit in July and August because <laughs> that's when Capitol Hill is in recess and we've got, obviously, the Supreme Court in recess as well. But the first Monday in October is always the beginning of the Supreme Court term. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, there was a movie many years ago called The First Monday in October – For those of you who are of a certain age, you might even be old enough to remember it. So we've got right now quite a number of cert petitions that are filed, right? So an individual, an applicant files a a petition for certiorari, Latin for review. I had right. no idea what that word was. Yes, yes. So they like Ferrari, right? So it actually, and and they get thousands a year, and only grant less than a hundred. This wow. is a significant. There's a significant disparity. So we have quite a number of pending cert petitions, but the ones that they've already granted cert on, um, they will be, I think, for our listeners, a little bit. Dry, but I will read one hmm. because um, so not we're not looking at a Supreme Court season that's quite as exciting as maybe the past two. Not so mm-hmm. far, but remember we have yet to see the justices take the bench, okay. and they have yet. So in fact, actually, they just had something called the Long Conference. Hmm. Um, just a, a day ago, they sat down. It is the biggest extended conference of the year. It's also known as the Mega Conference, hmm. but basically they take up a significant list of these cert petitions and they get together and they confer. Is this something that we're going to grant review on? Do the factors argue for us taking this particular case up? So the five that we know right now that are significant enough to watch, I think they're going to be of interest, tend to all toward go toward the notion of how big 
should we let the government get? Ooh, How much power should we let the government have? Mm-hmm. Now, if any of you have seen the movie Coda, wonderful movie about a fishing family. I, I want to say that they live uh, in Louisiana or in North Carolina. The uh, father is deaf, but he works with a daughter who is a singer, and he's never heard her sing. But it actually is based, believe it or not, on that precise regulatory scheme. It has to go with fishing laws, and this is a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramundo. Family-owned fisheries essentially have been challenging the National Marine Fisheries Service with a regulation that has promulgated that requires them to take on board somebody Mm -hmm. who's a regulator, who basically watches them while they fish and make sure they're following the law, but then also paying those individuals' salaries. Mom and pop fishing companies. Okay, we're talking little families who go out, they fish, they bring it in. It's a hard lifestyle. These are not multi-million dollar corporations. These are family-owned fisheries, right? So bring on this government regulator and also you got to pay their salary. It's insane. So they've they've actually challenged this regulation, and it goes to a question called Chevron deference, right? Sounds very fancy, but essentially for many, many years, the Supreme Court has recognized that in portions of a law that are ambiguous, you defer to the federal agency, the executive agency that is tasked with applying it. So, for example— If there was any ambiguity, let's say in Title IX, which, P.S., there isn't because we know sex is biological and doesn't relate to gender identity, P.S., Department of Education, um, you would naturally say, okay, we're going to defer to that agency. We're going to let them make a determination on what sex means because the term sex is ambiguous. So, again, we know it's not. Here's why it matters, because questions like that are going to be coming down the pike in very short order. Mm -hmm. When I say that we're going to see this massive rule change, on Title IX, which is applied through the Department of Education. That goes to the equality of men and women in education. This case actually has impact. Is the Supreme Court going to end what's known as Chevron deference? Or is it, as the ultimate arbiter on what the law and Constitution says, is it going to say, we're going to cut off the ability of these unelected bureaucrats to basically make whatever interpretation they want. So big case, this Loper Bright Enterprises has to do with fisheries and this particular marine uh, regulation, but it goes to all questions of how much regulatory power, how much power for interpretation we want to give these executive agencies. Again, unelected bureaucrats, right? Mm. So we have got, there are a couple of uh, cert petitions that are very, uh, what I'd like to call sexy, on the big (laughs) hot button issues, right? We actually do have a big sort of abortion-related case that goes to the question of chemical abortions and the abortion pill. It's been filed. It's gone all the way up. This is the FDA case. It's Alliance uh, for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA. Mm. They're claiming that the FDA didn't follow the appropriate law in fast-tracking for approval the abortion pill. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Mm -hmm. to do so, they had to actually classify pregnancy as a serious or life-threatening illness. Now, how do you make that argument with (laughs) a straight face? That's exactly (laughs) it. So the appeal has gone up from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which rolled back the restrictions um, so that it is more restricted now. 
the Supreme Court's eventually going to say, okay, either we're going to eliminate the approval for FDA use of abortifacients altogether, or we'll roll them back to where they were in 2016. Hmm. So that's going to be a big question. So depending on what the Supreme Court decides, those appropriate safeguards, I believe, are going to be put back in place, Mm -hmm. at least for distribution of it. Mm -hmm. They got relaxed during COVID. Of course, everything from this administration (laughs) got relaxed during COVID. So that's a huge case. That FDA case is very, very big. The Center for Medical Progress series of cases. Remember David Delayden's group, obviously. We've talked about him before, how he got undercover footage at Planned Parenthood admitting where they were openly admitting they were trafficking in aborted baby body parts in violation of federal law. The question there is whether or not that testimony, that individual recording, if Planned Parenthood executives didn't know they were being recorded, is it protection under the First Amendment Uh, or can it be blocked from going into court? Big question on that. So it's got obviously abortion implications because this would be devastating for Planned Parenthood, obviously, to go on record and to have that submitted as formal admission of guilt and violating violating federal law. So that's a big one. Um, Alliance for Defending Freedom, our friends over there, have got a big cert petition. Another free speech case, a lot of First Amendment cases mm. this term are pending, in a case called Tingley versus Ferguson. And that's actually a free speech and free exercise of religion challenge to a law that forbids what's been colloquially known as conversion therapy. Okay. Mm. This is voluntary therapy. If you go in to your lay pastor and you say, Pastor, I'm struggling with same sex attraction, or I feel like on the inside I'm a man as opposed to a woman. The pastor is going to sit down with you and he's going to counsel you according to scripture Mm -hmm. and according to those beliefs. But this state law has prevented pastors from actually speaking according to their beliefs and counseling in that way. They're muzzling pastors and religious counselors from being able to follow their religious beliefs, number one. And number two, they're compelling them to say a message that these Uh, pastors, these counselors, don't want to have to say. Mm -hmm. Big, big First Amendment implications on this case. That is in the free speech and in the free exercise of religion context. So Mm -hmm. we're still seeing some really, really big cert petitions. How it plays out is going to be anybody's guess, but I think we're going to have more answers very soon because they did just hold this long conference and a lot of these very compelling cases were just taken into consideration. Mm. Yeah, I I was going to say, even though maybe maybe not as big of cases as something like Roe v. Wade being overturned, but this is a power-packed yeah, session. Yeah, very mean, much so. This is going to be a big deal, and there's going to be a lot of eyes watching this. Yeah. So thanks for giving us the play-by-play, Sarah. You bet. That was such a needed rundown as we get ready to jump into, once again, watching the Supreme Court and what they do this term. Sarah, thank you for being with us. And as always, so brilliantly breaking down what we need to know, both in the news, but especially in the legal field. Thanks for having me, you guys. All right. Well, stay with us because up next, we are crowning our problematic woman of the week. He was evading police. We were told that he was recruited on TikTok by the cartel. He was on Facebook Live, and he was going over 105 miles an hour. He came straight off that exit, and he ran that red light, and he crashed into her and killed them. 
he he mutilated them. What you just heard are the first few seconds of a brand new documentary from The Daily Signal on the real cost of the Biden administration's border crisis. We spoke with Elisa Tambunga, a mother who has experienced unfathomable tragedy and loss at the hands of a human smuggler. You can find the full documentary telling Elisa Tambunga's story on The Daily Signal's YouTube page or across our social media platforms. All right, so we are changing up the crowning of the problematic woman of the week a little bit this week. This is, Kristen, honestly, this is a hard one. Kristen, we were chatting yesterday, and she was like, hey, do you want to talk about your friend? And I was like, okay, we'll see if I can get through this without crying. So, Kristen, I appreciate your your moral support. Um, but I, I was out from the show last week, and the reason why I was out is, for one, because Kristen and Lauren and Sarah are awesome and love me very well. But it was because I, I lost a very close and dear friend of mine passed away very suddenly. And so they were like, hey, we're taking the show. You need time. I was like, thank you. Because honestly, I was not thinking clearly last week. But my childhood best friend, we have known each other since I was six and she was seven. Mary O'Brien passed away very suddenly due to a stroke and just nothing that you ever anticipate happening Nothing that you ever planned for in your life, right? You're friends with someone for 24 years, and in your mind, they're just always there. They're always present. So to lose lose someone so suddenly where she had a stroke on a Thursday and Sunday morning, I, I got the news that she had passed. She received amazing medical care, but, you know, there, there's nothing that makes, there's nothing that makes a situation like this easier. It It's... It's just really raw, and it's still really raw. And I'm in the middle of of processing grief, but I wanted to take just a minute to honor my friend Mary today because she was someone who more than almost anyone that I know really embraced what it is to enjoy the season that God has planted you in. And to really drink life in, honestly, she she was this vibrant redhead, incredibly stubborn and Anything that she set her mind to do, whether it was horseback riding or modeling or Irish dancing, she just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to do it and I'm going to get really good at it. And she did. And it was the same way when she decided to become a wife and then a mom, just really living in this spirit of excellence and going fully into it. But as kids, Mary was honestly kind of the the rebel, the adventurous one. And I was like the cautious one. I have this fun memory. Multiple times this scenario played out. She lived on a small lake in New Hampshire and we would go out tubing on the water in the summer. And she would always, everything was how far can I push the limits? So she would stand up on the tube while the boat was going and try to dance. And I would just be like clutching at the handles for dear life and yelling like, Mary, sit down, you're going to get hurt. (laughs) But that was honestly so much, I feel like, of our relationship with Mary, just like going for it and having fun. And then she'd kind of pull me along and I'd be like, okay, yeah, I guess this is fun. And so she, she was one of my first friends that I feel like really pulled me out of out of my shell even as kids 
And, you know, for, for those who have followed Problematic Women for a long time, who've journeyed with us over the years, you know that on this show, we're no strangers to loss. Um, one of our original co-hosts, Brie Payton, passed away really suddenly several years ago. And, you know, I think in these situations in crisis and grief, you want to have some sort of beautiful answer, right? That feels refined and lovely and gives purpose to the pain. And quite frankly, like I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not at that point. And I think for so many people who have experienced grief and loss, you know, that feeling where it's like, okay, this doesn't make sense. And it's just sort of taking it one day at a time. So all, all I can kind of say at, at this point is, you know, the, the people around us, our friends, our family, they're a gift. We assume that we're going to have X number of years with them. Tragically, that that's not guaranteed. So our job is to cherish the people around us, to view them as the gifts that they are, to not take them for granted, to love them well, because they are a blessing. But thank you guys for, for letting me share that today. And, and for anyone who's walked through losing someone far too soon, I'm, I'm so sorry. It, it really is just impossibly hard. But we keep moving forward. We trust that God is good, even when we don't understand. So sorry to leave it on a somber note, but that's something I, I know I'm, I'm not the first person to experience grief like this. So many of you listening have as well. And just make sure you don't you don't do it alone. That's been a huge gift. I felt so supported, Kristen, by you and by Lauren and by my church community, by friends, by family. And that makes all the difference is just doing it with people doing grief alongside others. But we're going to leave it there for today because we're out of time. So thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Problem Women. No, thank you for sharing that, Virginia. And just Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, Guys, join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So take just a moment, leave us a five-star rating and review. We're across all podcast platforms. And we so appreciate when you do take a minute to let us know what you think about the show. Send us some love, but have a great week, guys. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.